is good. Our God is good, no matter what we face, we can hope and trust in Him. Thank you so much, ladies, for your ministry and song. If you would please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter. This morning we will be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And as always, it sets in context with other verses around it that is so important. Really, what we will be looking at this morning is a very basic command given to us as Christians. It's a command to arm ourselves. And in the context that First Peter was written, it was written to a church that was oppressed. It was written to a church that was threatened by persecution. And it is very intriguing in how the Christian, in anticipation or in the face of persecution, is commanded to arm himself. And so, if you would with me, uh, we're looking specifically at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning, but in context, I'd like for us to go back to chapter 3 and just read together chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, and actually continuing down through chapter 4 and verse 11. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation, way of life in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, 
lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, this is our prayer, that you might be glorified. I pray this morning as we open your word, which you have had inspired the apostle Peter to write, that we might have understanding, that your spirit would teach us. Lord, we acknowledge some difficulties in this passage, and we thereby in earnest ask for your leading and spirit's teaching. Help us to understand it and to understand it accurately, and help us then to apply it. Help us, Lord, to truly arm ourselves just as you, Lord Jesus, did when you faced suffering, when you faced persecution. And Lord, may this intent of our heart, may this arming of our mind result in a life that gives glory to you, a life that is holy and pleasing to you, our Savior, and our God. And so be with us now, I pray in your name. Amen. The passage here, the whole book of 1 Peter, is written to a people, a region of Christians who are in the midst and or in the threat of very serious, serious persecution. Some of what's described here and some of what makes this passage difficult is because we don't understand persecution in the sense that we don't experience it, especially in the way that it was experienced by these first century Christians. It was very, very serious. It was a, a life-threatening experience to go forth naming the name of Christ in an empire and in a region where Christianity had been officially and formally declared illegal and in which 
everyone was oppressing anyone who dare to name the name of Christ. Now imagine you're in a situation in which you have family, in which you had friends, you had work associates, and you come to know Christ. Some of us here know what that is like in the sense that we came to know the Lord later in life. And some of us don't entirely understand that because we came to know Christ as a young child in an environment where God's Word was lifted up and praised. Imagine, though, that your associate, your life, your entire family, your entire connection to everyone and everything, all overnight becomes hostile. How would you live? How would you survive? How would you face the realities of life? How would you handle temptation? All of these things play into the situation at hand. The section begins in chapter 3, verse 13, really, when the question is asked, who is he that will harm you? Who is he that will harm you? As we read through this, we find that in the midst of persecution, or really, in a sense, this passage is more than just in the midst of it, it is in the anticipation of it, which sometimes can be harder than the the actual reality of it itself. But how do you prepare yourself, and what is your perspective on it? That's why he begins with this question, who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Who is he that will harm you? We've seen here in going down through all of this some admonitions of, of how we give an answer in, with a good conscience and how we live with fear and meekness, really trusting ourselves to the Lord. We've seen here how we have Christ introduced in chapter 3, verse 18, yet again reminding us that He's the one who suffered for our sins. He's one who actually gave His life. He was put to death in the flesh, and yet He did not stay dead, but He rose from the dead, and He is presently gone into heaven in chapter 3, verse 22, and is seated on the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. And so, as we launch into chapter 4, we have to recognize that it's in the context of answering the question, who is it that will harm you if you be followers of good? And don't forget that your Savior, Jesus Christ, He too suffered, He died, He was buried, He rose again, and right now, as you're facing persecution, He is seated in the throne of God at His right hand with everyone subject to Him. Now, who is it that's going to harm you? Do they become the terrifying monsters that you might imagine? Well, they are, by the way, still terrifying monsters, but they're in a sovereign plan. They're subject to God. But how does this then help you in knowing this to face the persecution? Chapter 4, it continues on now, for as much transitioning now, recognizing the reality. I mean, really, the big reality is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, what difference does this make? For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. 
So here now there is a call to arm yourselves likewise as Christ armed himself. The word here, arm yourselves, is a command. It's an imperative word and statement. So let me ask you, when was the last time you obeyed this command? And what is it? Think now for a moment. The church, the people, are being threatened with persecution. Okay, in the past we've reviewed some of the different ways in which they persecuted people. I mean, at this time period, people were being fed to the wild beasts in the arena. They were being tied to stakes and covered in oil and burned alive as lampposts in gardens of wealthy people. They, they, the, um, they, they were being taken into the idols in the temples of gods and being murdered in those temples if they wouldn't worship the idols. Just, just grotesque, unthinkable ways of torture and death, these monsters. And the command here now is arm yourselves. Now, many people might immediately jump to the conclusion in that sense that that means I need to go get myself a sword and a spear and a shield and go fight and defend myself. But it doesn't say to arm yourselves with sword, spear, and buckler. What does it tell us to arm ourselves with? We're to arm ourselves with the mind, the same mind that Christ had. And that's really interesting. Because when we consider Christ, who up in chapter 3, verse 18, is the one who suffered he suffered not actually for anything he had done, but rather for us. And we, I hope, know back in Philippians chapter 2, the description of Christ. Here it's a different word regarding mind, but there it, it carries some of the same idea that's similar. It says, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He's God. Yet, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He became one of us, thereby we can identify with him. He wasn't some superhero. He was one of us, made flesh like us, in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion of man, it says that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He was humble. He was meek. Really, we read of the fruits of the Spirit as we're working on memorizing. Those are fruits of Christ, His Spirit. In the midst of persecution, when we are armed with the same mind as Christ, our intent is to be yielded to the Spirit of God, that in that moment, what flows through us, but love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, meekness is strength or power under control, even in the midst of pressure, temperance being under control, specifically in this case, under the Spirit's control. And in all of this, there's, there's no law against this. This was Christ. This is the mind of Christ. And do we arm ourselves 
in such a way. This, the same mind, the mind here, the idea of this mind, the word here used is translated over in Hebrews chapter 4, in that famous verse we know that talks about the word of God being as a sword, and it describes in there of the sword being used to discern between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So often, when we are preparing for a difficult day, we have to get ourselves in the right frame of mind. Are you all like me in that? You're facing a difficult situation, a difficult task, and before you can really do it, you have to get in the right frame of mind. You have to, actually, as Peter described in a previous chapter, you have to gird up the loins of your mind. This is another way of describing it in that Christ, Christ did not come to that day of crucifixion, oh, what will be, will be. No. He had an intent. He, knowing and having a greater scheme than any of us would ever face in suffering or persecution, he went into that knowing full well what it was and what it was accomplishing in an eternal perspective and in a big way. But yet he went into it with very intentional mindset, which is why it's so interesting to see Peter, James, John, others who we called to pray, and they're falling asleep. They're not understanding this perspective that Christ has as he's going into it. And so here, in the midst of persecution, in the threat of persecution, the command is given. It's not a suggestion. It's imperative. The command is given, arm yourselves, likewise, with the same mind, the mind of Christ. And it reckons back then for the one here he is who suffered for us in the flesh. Here is another call to us to identify with his humanity. His humanity. He was like us. He was one of us. His humanity. So we too can arm ourselves with the same mind. And then the verse in verse 1 here transitions. For it then goes and says, For he, and this here is now the believer, that hath suffered in the flesh, hath ceased from sin. That's an interesting statement. We're going to look at it, but let's bring it further in. In the whole context here, let's not let the verse break, lose our train of thought. For here now it speaks of the Christian, the us. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but, an emphatic but, to the will of God. So here now we have an appeal to Christians who are living in the flesh. What that means is that they're alive, living in a body. And that comes with some complex issues because sin is very real in our lives and in this time, isn't it? Um, physical pain is very real in this life at this time. And here, the state is talking about how we are living our lives in this flesh, in this body, while we're yet alive. It's going to go on and talk more about people who have died, but here it's about in this flesh. 
But notice here it says, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now you might say, really? Well, what is this talking about? Well, let me bring you to a parallel passage back in Romans chapter 5 and 6. It doesn't mean here that those who suffer persecution are somehow magically delivered from the temptation to sin and are delivered and, and are sinless people. That's not what it's saying. It's saying what's very similarly described in Romans chapter 5 and 6, where it speaks of sin that reigned unto death, last verse of Romans chapter 5, that's not who we are as Christians, but rather we have grace that reigns unto righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's the answer? God forbid. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We continue, and we look through all of this, and this morning our purpose is to preach Romans 6, but Romans 6 is a foundational, complementary, parallel passage. For as we continue on here, it continues on in verse 11 is the conclusion of this passage. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield yourselves members as, your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, generally and categorically, each one of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are, as Romans 6 says, dead to sin. That doesn't mean that we don't sin. But it means that sin technically and in the biggest picture has no power and authority over us. And thereby, why would we let it reign? The only reason why it wins and the only reason why sin reigns in our mortal flesh is because we let it. The reality fact is, is that we are dead to sin. Now what's intriguing about how First Peter puts it, this is true and reality, foundational, fundamentally true for every one of us. Every one of us. We're dead to sin. But if you notice how Peter rephrased it about he that suffers ceaseth to sin? Take it now and put yourself in that frame set or that mindset of one who is being threatened by persecution. Do you believe God? Do you believe his word? When the cost for obeying God may mean that you get tortured and executed? Do you think that's going to change your life? It sure is. So many Christians in America walk through, live through life, laissez-faire, casually, without any intention, without the armed mind as described here. And when temptation comes, it's just, there's not even a battle. It, we, we, we just sin. How much different would it be if there was the constant and perpetual threat of persecution and suffering? We would sit back more often and say, 
why would I do this when this is the very thing that the wrath of God falls upon the children of disobedience for? Why would I allow myself to let sin reign in my mortal flesh when you just spent the last week in bonds for doing what was right? Huge motivation of gearing up to really engage in that battle, which really is a battle that's already won because Jesus won the war over sin, and it's really for us to yield to the work that he's done, reckon ourselves indeed dead unto sin, but alive unto God, letting him win. And so here it is, this aspect here, for he that suffereth in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Here it continues on in making the statement here. It's an issue here that if you're saved, why do you keep on sinning? Why would you continue the rest of this time in the flesh, in this life, in this body, continuing to do the will of the Gentiles? It makes no sense. Especially now coming back into the historical context of this, in which the Gentiles are oppressing you, are persecuting you, and are killing you. So we live our lives no longer in the flesh to the lusts of men. Here the word lust speaks of the passionate desires, and the word itself can either be um, negative or positive. You know, it, it might it might be appropriate to lust after that delicious cookie at dessert, maybe. Not necessarily for all of us at all the time. But anyway, there's certain things that there's nothing wrong with to have long, strong desires or passions for. But there are other things that are morally evil and filthy, and that's what's in context here. We don't live the rest of our time in this flesh um, fulfilling, living in these lusts of men. But what rather? But to the will of God. We don't continue in sin, but rather we continue to live the rest of our time in the flesh according to the will of God as he's revealed in his word. It's a contrast, you see it. There's a contrast, which also ought to mean that there should be a contrast for us. He goes on and continues what that lusts of men were and notice he puts it in the next verse, verse 3, in time past. So right now, at this point, you're hearing this. And it really is from the moment you've received Christ, the moment you've believed on Jesus, going forth the rest of your life in this flesh. Don't live the rest of this life to fulfill the passions and desires of men that are evil, but rather live the rest of this time in your life fulfilling the will of God and identifying that there is a difference. So often, there's this aspect in which Christianity, in different parts of church history, has been added to a pantheon of other religions and philosophies. And we would say, oh, that's terrible. But we do it sometimes. So therefore, at this point, there is a call to recognize, do we walk and continue to live in the lusts according to man's way, or do we live the rest of our time in the flesh as we look to that day of glory that day of being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which for some is through death, others it will be through the rapture. 
How, how do we live the rest of this time? It's according to the will of God. And in doing so, we recognize that there's a difference from what was before. Here is the difference. Verse 3, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. So now we're finding out that the lust of men are actually the will of the Gentiles. What does that mean? I hope you all know that when we read the word Gentiles in our Bibles, it can have two meanings. One speaks of ethnicity. Gentile refers to anyone who is not a Jew. Anyone who is not a Jew. The second sense or meaning of the word Gentile, as it is used here, is referring to the way of life of a godless people. And when I mean godless, it doesn't mean that they're not religious and they're not superstitious. It means that they do not live in the way of the one true God. It's a life of wickedness. It's a people who follow after wickedness, not after God's way. And so here is a distinction made between the will of God and the will of the Gentiles, the godless society. That's somewhat true in our perspectives. I, I don't know that we have any Jews in our congregation here, but there's a little element of parallelism. And I'm, what I'm about to say does not negate the fact that there are ethnic Jews and that God still has a plan for ethnic Jews. But there's a little bit of a cultural similarity for some of you here in the sense that you have been raised in a Christian home and your understanding and perception of life is, to the most part, biblical and godly. And if you were to step out of that little culture bubble of your family and realize that, wow, the rest of the world doesn't live the way I was raised to live. And so in a sense we're not replacing Jews, there's still the ethnic Jew aspect, but there's a sense in which in a Christian home and in a Christian culture and society, you can identify how there's a distinction of a godly way of living and an ungodly way of living. And that's what's being described here. And that whole system, that whole society has expectations of you. Have you ever felt it? Have you ever felt the expectations of society upon you? In every aspect of your life, they have expectations. They have a will for your life. Fashion designers have a will for your clothing styles. Entertainment directors have a will for your entertainment amusement. Life and so forth is so full of designing and giving you the will of the Gentiles. There's a certain understanding of what it means to have a good time. There is the will of the Gentiles of a godless society that defines what a good time is. So much so that when, when, um, when Christians who seek to live godly are having a good time, it's like, well, you think that's a good time? Like, really? What do you do for fun? We'll come to that. What is it here? There's a recognition here now for that we are recognizing this aspect, that we are dead to sin, but yet we're still in this flesh, and we're still looking for the redemption of this body. And for the rest of this time that we live in this flesh, whose will do we live? The godless society, world, here described as of the will of the Gentiles, or the will of God? Do we live according to the will of God or according to our own passions and desires? 
and then what feeds our own passions and desires. He goes in and describes some of what was the will of the Gentiles that was described as, and again here, notice that it's described in time past. We walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. What are these things? Lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is the concept and idea of our sensual passions, desires, and fulfillments of those desires. Um, I used to think it was a King James-only word, but as I continue to get exposed to more and more literature, it's intriguing to see it in, in different news outlets. I've read it in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and so forth. And typically, it's used kind of in a tongue-in-cheek mockery way, as if, you know, as if so-and-so thinks this is lascivious. Well, here, it's a lasciviousness. A lasciviousness is a, is a moral impurity. It, it, is, it, is, it is a sensuality that also has a sexual context to it, but it's, it's, it's not good. It's not honoring to the Lord. It's, it's, it's evil. In fact, the word is translated also here, um, written by Peter over in 2 Peter, as filthy. They're coupled with the word conversation, filthy conversation. Lasciviousness is described as wantonness. Now, that's an interesting word, and that is an old word. But it's interesting at how it is, it is wantonness carries the idea of, of, of it missing something. In its actual sense, it carries the idea of missing what is right, of what is God-honoring in its wantonness. But it's also intriguing that it comes with that idea when here in 1 Peter, it says that in the time past, our life may suffice us what that means is that before Christ, I found satisfaction in these things. But yet, lasciviousness, one of the concepts of it is wantonness, that which is without satisfaction, satisfaction of God. Lusts here, same as up in verse 2, the deep desire here, evil in context. The excess of wine is a combination of two Greek words that speaks of wine that is bubbling up, overflowing. Here, just an outright drunkenness. Revelings. This is like rioting, but it's, it speaks in the same context of those who are, who are, you know, buzzed, they say, or the one who has just kind of had their inhibitions taken off, and they just go out, and they're just going from place to place, uh, making noise and causing trouble. When I used to live in the, in the city, um, I didn't look forward to Friday nights or Saturday nights because the neighborhood would come alive with revelings until two or three in the morning of the loud music and the, the bickering and the, the, the shouting, and, and it was just, it was this kind of thing. It's not necessarily going around destroying property, but it's just, it's just of this frolicsome. And in the day of this time, they would actually have drinking parties, and then they would just go out onto the street, and they would go from house to house trying to recruit people to join their drinking party, as they would just go from place to place, and it was a whole thing of, of getting people all to be involved. Sometimes I think when we lived in the city, my neighbors never thought I knew how to have a good time. But it was partly because what was defined as a good time, what, what sufficed the will of the Gentiles as a good time was this revelings. It's not a good time in God's way. 
Here, banquetings, this doesn't mean that they had a nice banquet or feast in the sense that we typically think of it. A banqueting in that day was a feast, but it was also tied in with other immorality. Um, a parallel today would be indecent shows that are a part of a meal or after a meal and, and dis- different act- entertainment things. And that was what was going on here. And it was, it was not a good situation. Abominable idolatry, that which is not, that, that which is abhorred in the worshiping of idols. Here, the word also has the idea of that which is unlawful. It was, it's forbidden. It's disgusting. This is the will of the Gentiles. And the rest of our life as we live in the flesh, we ought not to live according to the will of the Gentiles. But what's in contrast? But in the will of God. See here, these things may have once sufficed us, but you and I, and even the world knows that these things don't suffice us. Really. They advertise that they do. But in the end, it's only for a season. And it's not real, true satisfaction at all. We know real satisfaction comes only from God. Well, now put yourself in the idea and the situation in which you have lived this way. Or that you live in a society that lives this way. And you have interactions with them. Now you are Christ's. Now you cease from sin. Now you go forth and you are no longer with the mind and armed with the mind of fulfilling the lusts of man, the will of the Gentiles, but, underline the word, circle it, it's a big deal, that but is a contrast. It is important to know. Rather live according to the will of God. Now when you're doing that and that mind is in you, you will be misunderstood. You will be thought strange. You will be thought of as weird. Verse 4 tells us so. Wherein, now you, living the rest of your time in the flesh, according to the will of God, wherein they, the Gentiles, the godless society, your godless friends, your godless family, think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. Speaking evil of you. The speaking evil of you is the Greek word blasphemos. Sound familiar? They blaspheme you. That's a pretty strong word. They speak evil of you. Bounce back now to verse, chapter 3, verse 13 with our question. It introduces this whole section. Who is it that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is What? good. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? So here now, doing that which is good is the will of God. Now you've got people who think it's strange. You don't run with them like you used to run. And they blaspheme you. But it's not only blaspheme, because if we keep on reading down through, we find out in verse 12 that there are fiery trials It's not a good situation. And in fact, as we're going to learn in verse 6, there are people who have died as a result of this blaspheming, who have been martyred. So in all of this here, asking this question, 
And who is he that will harm you? He may be one who blasphemes you. He may be one who thinks it's strange that you don't run with him anymore. Remember, we were talking earlier in verse 22 about Christ going into heaven and he's the one whom angels and authorities and principalities and powers are made subject to? Who, those who, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5, who, those who think you strange, those who blaspheme, speak evil of you, they shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Keep that in mind. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He did himself suffer and die for us. He was buried, he rose again, and now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and he is ready to judge the quick, which is a word for living, and the dead. He's the judge. And so when you're asking this question, who is he that will harm you? Oh, there are these people. They're blaspheming me. And it's not necessarily they're blaspheming me. It's probably more like they're blaspheming me. Who will harm you as they're pushing you down and killing you? Well, you know the answer. Those who shall give an account to him, Jesus Christ, that is ready to judge the living and the dead. He sees it. He's going to judge. And you may be in the midst of that place, oppressed, fearful of death. There are some horrific accounts that come from this period of history that John Fox recorded for us of a mother who had been caught up in some of the idolatrous worship at Ephesus. Remember the goddess Diana? A perverted, lascivious worship. She had been freed from it through Christ. She left it all. But you know the people who used to run that little little worship, pagan, lascivious center came and got her and her children and brought them in and made her worship that despicable idol, Diana. She wouldn't do it. And one by one, they murdered her children in front of her. And after murdering each child, they demand that she worship the grotesque idol. She wouldn't do it. I don't know what was in her mind. I'm looking forward to one day meeting her. But I wonder if Peter's letter hadn't arrived there in Ephesus and she hadn't read verse 5 and 6. When she sees all of this, and they're not just wanting her to bow down and worship this idol, but to participate in all of the other debauchery surrounding it. If she hadn't remembered this, these shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. And how real verse 6 must have been for her. Verse 6 is a very difficult verse, but it's very important and it's simplified when we understand it in context. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. There's a lot of different views of what this verse means, just so you know. But in its plain sense and understanding it in its context, it's saying here that in understanding this, imagine now you're that mother who is witnessing her dear children being murdered for being Christians. And, and, and here she is one who's crying out to them, stay true, trust in Jesus. They were believers too. 
They were being murdered. And here was the comfort for that mother. This comfort can be for all of us. For for this cause was the gospel preached to them that are dead. For that mother there, it's for her children that she just saw die. And she takes, and when she sees them die, she can have hope knowing that the gospel had been preached to them and they had received the gospel. And so that even though they might be judged according to men in the flesh, these monsters who are but flesh, who are murdering them, yes, they're being judged and they're dying, but they're still alive. They live according to God in the Spirit. They have everlasting life. And this murderous death is but a translation from this flesh into the life hereafter with Jesus Christ in his presence. The gospel is preached. It was preached also to them that are now dead is the concept here that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, even though men in the flesh who think they're big macho guys in the glory of the grass and the flower are judging them and putting them to death. In reality, it is but instead they are living according to God in the Spirit. Just like Stephen that day, they're stoning him. They're stoning him. Men in the flesh are throwing those rocks at him, taking his life because he stands for truth. But what was actually going on for Stephen? As one who had the gospel preached to him, one who believed the gospel, and what is the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that Jesus was buried and that Jesus rose again. And that all who believe in Jesus shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so these men in the flesh who are judging you, who are pushing you down, who are even killing you, they will give an account to the one who sits on the right hand of God. And for you, though you are being judged by men of flesh, it is but for you to be as Stephen, who stood there as the stones were flying, was able to look into the very heavens and see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Which is interesting because most of the time Jesus is referred to as sitting. And many have suggested, and I like the suggestion, that in this very moment, as Stephen was about to be... <laughs> killed it was ultimately a deliverance of this life in the flesh and jesus was standing up to welcome him home with a hug this is why the gospel is preached that mother there in ephesus who saw her children being murdered was able to cry out to them Stand fast. Stay true. 
because she knew that the gospel had been preached to them and that they had received it. And though they were being judged according to those of the flesh, they were still going to live. They would not perish, but as John 3.16 says, have everlasting life. It is a mystery that the world does not understand. But when we understand Jesus Christ and we understand the reality of faith in him and his life united with our life, it doesn't matter who it is that will harm us. Who is it that will harm us? All principalities, angels, powers, they've been made subject to Christ. No matter who's going to harm me, all will give an account to him that judges the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. He'll judge while you're still alive. Think of Herod, the, Herod, the one guy, Herod who, who just declared himself a god, and bang, he was judged right there in the flesh as living, and he was then judged and will be judged as one dead. This is, a, this, is, this, is, this is a sermon. This is an exhortation to those people there, these strangers, these pilgrims who are scattered about Asia Minor to stand firm and true. In fact, that's what the next verse says, which we don't have time to go in this week, but it says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And it goes on and gives some very practical admonitions for how to actually prepare for times of persecution. It gets really raw and practical. But it begins, chapter 4, by arming ourselves likewise with the mind of Christ. Do we have his mind? When we face life this week, and most of us don't face anything like the persecutions, that this letter was written to people facing. But do we go forth recognizing, why am I sinning? I ceased from sin. That all that used to suffice, it's worthless. There's no satisfaction in any of the desires of man or in the will of the Gentiles. There's no satisfaction in lasciviousness or of my lust or in revelings or in drunkenness. There's no satisfaction in that. But there is satisfaction in doing the will of God, even if people think it's strange of me, and even if those people torture me and kill me, I've had the gospel preached to me. And so that even though men of the flesh will judge me, it will just continue on for me in life everlasting. And so I leave you this morning with two challenges. First, arm yourself. Likewise, with the same mind of Christ, a mind of humility and a mind that is intentional. And what is that intention? The intention to live after the will of God. Notice Stephen, he didn't see the stones flying at him. Instead, he saw into the very throne room of God. That's a different perspective. Is that our intention, our focus? in life. If it is, then we won't find satisfaction in the will of the Gentiles or in our own lusts. We'll find our satisfaction in Christ. And you know what this should cause us to do? To preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. 
You think about it. We are here in a situation where many talk about, and I think in my generation and in the children of my, my children's generation, that intense persecution is on the horizon for America unless there's a shift or change. Are we arming ourselves properly? I'm not talking about getting your AK-47s. No, no. Are you arming yourselves likewise in the mind of Christ? Prepared for it? And let me give you another really important piece. Are we preaching the gospel to those who need to be saved, to those who need to receive the gospel and be saved? Think of Paul. He once was the persecutor, Saul, who had the gospel preached to him, and he kicked against it and kicked against it and kicked against it. There's a sense in which, I believe, Stephen's death and martyrdom, of which he stood by as one of the first to, to make it happen, saw him, and it led to him coming to Jesus. How do we live, and how do we share the gospel? We need to be sharing the gospel. Think of this. The account of that same woman from Ephesus is that she had known some of her persecutors and that upon seeing her steadfastness in this disaster, it caused him to realize the truth of the gospel that she had already preached to him. And he stepped forward after her death, after the one who had just been persecuting her, and himself broke down in tears and cried, I now believe. And they fell on him and killed him. You see, now he's among the dead to whom the gospel had been preached. Are we faithful ambassadors? Are we faithful witnesses? Lord Jesus, we bow before you as the Lord of all, the creator of heaven and earth, the I am, the eternal God, you who loved us, you who gave yourself for us, you who left us an example. May we have your same mind. May we have your same mind. And as we go forth, may we have a love for people and proclaim your truth. May we live our lives with your mind of intention. May the intents of our heart be shaped by your word as we live not according to the will of godless society, but according to your will. May we not live as what once sufficed us, the emptiness of life, but may we go forth living in you, the true vine, our very sustenance of life, both now in the flesh and forever and ever and ever. May all the glory, all the honor be to you, for you, you alone are worthy of praise, glory, and honor. And we humble ourselves under your mighty hand 
as we walk and continue in this flesh to serve you, our God. Lord Jesus, I pray that your word might go forth and have free course, that we might be faithful witnesses, martyrs, witnesses of your word and truth, of your gospel. May we preach it so that one day we may meet those who are dead, who upon hearing the gospel believed, and though they may have been judged by men in the flesh, still live, having life everlasting because they believed your gospel. They believed in you and trusted in you. Lord God, may we ever be faithful and true to share. Give us compassion and desire and passion to love others, that others might come to know you. Father, we commit ourselves to you in this day as we praise you and worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.